Good morning, folks. My name's Phil, and I'm one of the pastors here at Morden Road Church. Uh, it's my weighty, weighty responsibility to preach on Exodus 20 this morning. And like last week, I, I want to be honest right at the start, it has been hard to write this sermon. Uh, there is so much more that could be said about Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 than I am able to say today. And to be frank, I have been too mentally frazzled to, to be able to focus this into a really concise sermon, I'm afraid. So it's going to be about five minutes longer than we're used to. But yeah, I hope you'll stick with it. We're going to pray that the Lord would help us to. I hope we're going to see a couple of really important things clearly from the Ten Commandments. And if you're going to struggle to concentrate because you've got rowdy kids in the room or something like that, maybe, yeah, maybe now is the time, as we're already 40 minutes in, just to say, I'm going to resolve to find some time later today where I can listen back to this sermon in peace. Um, I hope th this is such a foundational passage that it would be worth giving your attention to in that way. And I know parents, I'm sorry, I've not made it easy, easier this morning because I haven't done a kid's worksheet. So I'll leave that to you. <laughs> Let's pray that the Lord would help us, whether we're listening now or later. Heavenly Father, as we come to this uh, profound and foundational part of your word, with full minds with weary hearts. Lord, please help us. Even to hear your word rightly, never mind to take it to heart, is something supernatural, something we cannot do without your spirit. Please send your spirit in abundance this morning to help me speak, to help us to hear you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Have you, to begin with, have you ever heard people say that what God really wants is simply for us to treat other people rightly? This is the idea that so long as we are kind to the people around us and don't harm them, God is happy. That is enough for him. That is acceptable worship. And he will let us into heaven on that basis. Perhaps you've even heard people say this, selectively quoting some of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not steal. It's often revealing which ones they leave out. And that God simply wants us to be nice to other people is a common idea in popular, popular spirituality. And often that's all people think the Christian message is. But that view is shown to be pitifully and woefully inadequate by God's self-revelation in his own words to his people in Exodus 20. Words that they heard firsthand as God himself spoke directly to them from Mount Sinai, out of thick smoke, cloud, 
with thunder and lightning and earth tremors, as we saw last week in chapter 19. True worship of the creator of the universe, worship that is pleasing to him, certainly includes the way we treat other people. But it begins with our attitude to God himself. It begins with what we believe about him and the way we relate to him. And only when we get these things in place can we treat other people in a way that is truly pleasing to him as well. So as we look at the Ten Commandments today, I want to get to the heart of true worship. And I hope that we're going to see two things clearly. Firstly, the object of true worship. And that true worship begins in the heart. True worship begins in the heart. So let's begin by setting the scene to see how we should approach, how we should interpret and understand the Ten Commandments. Firstly, look with me at verses one to two. God speaks directly to Israel and he reminds them who he is and why they are here with him at Mount Sinai. He says, I am the Lord, your God. In other words, he is Yahweh, whose name means I am who I am. He is the self-defining, self-existent, transcendent creator of the universe. And yet he is also the God of their ancestors, the God who draws near to his people. And he came to Israel in fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham to rescue them from slavery in Egypt, to make them his very own people and give them their very own land. They were rescued to be his treasured possession among all the nations, as we saw last week in Exodus 19. He's given them an enormous privilege and he's done it so that they might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, they are to show the world the blessings of drawing near to the creator of the universe in intimate relationship and the blessings of living under his good rule. And so through Israel, Yahweh intended to draw people from every nation on earth to himself as they looked at Israel, as they saw the light and came to it and were blessed. This context is absolutely vital if we are to understand the Ten Commandments rightly. They were not given to humanity in general, like a generic moral code that we can or should all try to follow, regardless of our relationship with God. No, they were given specifically to God's chosen people, Israel, those who had been brought into relationship with him, through the covering over of their sins at the Passover. And they were not, the commands were not given so that Israel might earn God's love. 
he has already chosen and promised and covenanted to set his love upon them hundreds of years before. He rescued them in fulfillment of those promises, entirely by his own power, without Israel doing anything to assist him or earn it. So we should absolutely not think of the Ten Commandments as teaching salvation by works, as if we have to earn God's love. And we should be very cautious in applying the Ten Commandments to people who don't worship the God of Israel, who haven't experienced his saving, atoning work supremely in Jesus Christ. Because the commandments are not given to humanity in general apart from right relationship with God. And they cannot be truly kept in a way that is pleasing to God outside of such a relationship. The importance of that relationship is more obvious when we realize that the Ten Commandments formed the basis of a covenant between God and Israel. A covenant that would, would govern his ongoing relationship with them. Like marriage, which is a form of covenant, the Ten Commandments lay down the privileges and responsibilities of each party so they will know how to act towards each other and what they can expect from one another. Now, God had already committed to his responsibilities in previous covenants with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. So the Ten Commandments focus mainly on how Israel should respond to God's love, since he had become like a husband to them. And the Ten Commandments showed how Israel was to now fulfill their calling as that kingdom of priests and holy nation, how they were to fulfill it in loving, loyal, and grateful obedience to their rescuing husband by mirroring his own holy character. This context is so important if we are to really get the Ten Commandments and understand them rightly. But what about us? Most of us aren't physically descended from Israel. And you might know from the New Testament that God's people are no longer under the covenant that God made with ancient Israel at Sinai. That covenant lasted only until the coming of Jesus. So how are the Ten Commandments relevant to us? Well, firstly, they are relevant because the Gentile believers among us have been grafted into the believing faithful remnant of Israel through our union with Christ, the Jewish Messiah. As we are united to Christ, we are united to the true spiritual Israel. We become children of God, heirs of God's promises with Ab to Abraham. And so there is a continuity between us and ancient Israel. And if, if that's unfamiliar to you, you can read about it in Romans 11 and Galatians 3. But secondly, the commandments apply to us today because one of the main purposes of the new covenant, which Jesus made by his blood, 
was to write the law upon our hearts. You can read about this in Jeremiah 31, in verses 31 to 34. Israel as a whole broke God's covenant, this covenant at Sinai, because they remained hard-hearted. So they didn't love God and keep his commands. Though, of course, many of the individuals were faithful. As a nation, they were not. And so they went into exile. And the new covenant remedies that problem of hard-heartedness by teaching all of God's people, from the least to the greatest, to know God truly. And it writes his law upon our hearts. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing in followers of Jesus today, as he renews our hearts and empowers us to follow Jesus. He is writing God's law upon our hearts so that we will keep it. And so we will fulfill Israel's calling to be that kingdom of priests and holy nation. We do this as we follow the example of Jesus, who kept the Ten Commandments perfectly and who has interpreted them to us. So although we are not under the law of Moses in the way ancient Israel was, we are still called to fulfill God's law today. The law that is encapsulated in these 10 commandments. So with all that said, what does God ask of us in his commandments? How are we to worship him? And to answer that question, I'm gonna focus primarily on the first and second commandments in verses three to six in Exodus 20. I really believe that these get to the heart of what right relationship with God looks like. All the other commandments flow naturally from it. And we can't please God in the other commandments unless we keep the first two, because such obedience would not spring from true faith in God. And as Paul says in Romans 14, verse 23, everything that does not come from faith is sin. So I'm going to focus on two key things. One, true worship has one object. And secondly, true worship begins with the heart. So firstly, true worship has one object. Yahweh's first commandment was that you shall have no other gods before me. He wasn't simply asking to be the first among many gods in the Israelites' lives, the top of the pile. His words carry more the sense that they should have no other gods set against him, no rivals. Basically, he is asking for undivided loyalty. He should be the sole object of his people's worship. And what could be more reasonable than that? He had single-handedly rescued Israel in a way that showed all Egypt's gods to be utterly powerless before him. That's what the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea were about, at least in part. So how could Israel not give him their undivided loyalty? There may be power behind other gods, 
And the Apostle Paul says that this is demonic power in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20. But that in no way makes them worthy of worship or fear. For God's people, Yahweh alone is to be worshipped and feared as the saviour whose deeds are totally unparalleled. And how much more unparalleled was his rescue of us in Christ, where God turned the devil's own weapons against him so that Jesus' apparent defeat on the cross became the very means of our salvation, stripping the devil of all power to accuse us as Jesus' death paid for our sins. Yahweh alone is the true object of worship. And verse four gives us another clue why. Israel was not to make any image of Yahweh as the focus of their worship, whether a statue or painting or naturally occurring objects like trees. Nothing in heaven or earth or under the sea is a suitable form to represent Yahweh. And why? Because he transcends all of them. He alone is uncreated, eternal, not bound by time or space. He can't be, uh, nothing within creation is remotely comparable to him. He is who he is. He can't be defined by reference to anything in creation because he is a totally different order of existence. So neither sun or moon Angels or demons, animals, gold, silver, or even ourselves as his image bearers are worthy to represent him or to receive worship. All things were created by him and are utterly dependent on him for their existence. Why would we worship them? Yahweh alone is the true object of worship, and so he deserves our undivided loyalty. And that is no different for us as Christians. Of course, we know more of who Yahweh is than Israel did then. He has since revealed himself to us more clearly as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And in one sense, we do have an image of him because God the Son took on a human body to restore God's broken image in human beings. And this God-man images God to us so perfectly that he can say in John chapter 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. When we look at Jesus, we see God. But it's vitally important to remember that Jesus's human body is seated in heaven. So we should never worship attempts to portray him in paintings or sculpture as if they are actually him. They are not. And nor should we worship any other worldly attempts to represent God in physical form. In the West, we probably need to be especially on guard against a similar but more subtle danger. It is ever so easy 
to make a false image of what God is like in our hearts and our minds based on our own logic or reasoning or feelings about what God should or must be like. That's what is happening when people say, I think it would be unreasonable if God didn't accept everyone just as they are. And surely God is reasonable, so therefore he must accept everyone. That's what is going on when people say, I feel like it's unloving to tell people they can't love whoever they choose. And God is love, so he must think the same way as me. That is making God in our image. That is taking our finite, fallible powers of reasoning or feelings as the starting point for existence and then imposing our imaginations on everything else. But Yahweh is the only uncreated creator of the universe, not you or me. He is the starting point of all existence and meaning. And therefore, only he can tell us what he is like and who we should be as his image bearers. That's part of what his name means. I am who I am, not who you say I am. So we must be very careful as Christians to base our conception of God only on what he has revealed to us in his word, the Bible. Otherwise, we too will start to worship idols of our own imagining. There is a lot more we could say about idolatry. It's often talked about in other sermons, so I'm not going to say more about it now. But suffice to say, true worship has one object. Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just as he has revealed himself in his own words in the Bible. So we must worship him with undivided loyalty. Secondly, true worship begins in the heart. True worship begins in the heart. True worship is not about merely performing the right rituals. It's not about simply following the right moral code. God doesn't want cold obedience simply because we feel duty bound. Or to keep him quiet and get him off our backs. Or even to manipulate him in, into giving us what we want. Far from it. He wants our hearts because he loves his people and fully deserves our love in return. This is implied in verse 5, Exodus 20, when he says that I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I think he means jealousy in the sense of a devoted husband who has eyes only for his wife and who is therefore jealous for her full affection and her faithfulness in return. Such a husband would be rightly angry and grieved if his wife broke the marriage covenant by giving her love to another man. And the Bible tells us that marriage is meant to be a picture of the relationship between God and his people. He loves his people like a devoted husband. So the core of true worship 
is to return the love of our creating, sustaining, rescuing and redeeming God. Even though he has already loved us so much more than we could ever love him back. And that is why Moses sums up the Ten Commandments like this in Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 to 5. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That is why Jesus says wholehearted love for God is the greatest commandment in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, quoting Deuteronomy 6. We are commanded to love because he first loved us. And he is utterly worthy of our love. And in Exodus 19, 20, verse 6, he promises to pour out yet more abundant love in response. Love to every generation that remains faithful to him. How amazing is Yahweh's love? How worthy is he of our love? And how much more should we as Christians love him? He hasn't just rescued us from political oppression or physical slavery, agonizing and humiliating as that was for Israel. He has rescued us from spiritual oppression and slavery, in which we loved sin so much that we chased after it in a hopeless, futile, fruitless search for satisfaction and security that sin could never deliver. He, he rescued us from a slavery in which we would never willingly choose to love our creator as he truly is. Because our hearts were so poisoned against him with suspicion and mistrust. He has rescued us from an infatuation with sin that condemned us to eternity in hell, away from his steadfast love and kindness. How much more should we love the God who willingly sent his son to bear that eternal weight of condemnation? How much more should we love the son who willingly gave himself up to be forsaken on the cross? How much more should we praise Father, Son and Holy Spirit when the Spirit has poured the assurance of God's love into our doubting hearts? Just as Paul says in Romans 5 verse 5. If ancient Israel had ample reason to love Yahweh, how much more should we love him from the heart today? True worship has one object, our creator and redeemer Yahweh, who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And true worship begins in the heart with undivided love for him. That is the kind of love we should pray for as his people. Pray that the spirit would grow it in us. Overcoming our doubts and our fears. And if you would not call yourself a Christian, 
you should ask him to show you the depth of his saving love for you, supremely as he's revealed it in Christ, so that your heart is changed, so that you can start to love him back, so that you may worship him truly. The more, um, the more his love fills our hearts, the more willingly we will keep the other commandments. I'm not going to go into detail now, but here's a few examples just to help you think. The more we love him, the less likely we are to say false things in connection with his precious name. Or, or to use the name Jesus as a swear word. Or even to say, oh my God, lightly. And the more we love him, the less we will feel the need to work relentlessly on this, that or the other seven days a week. The more we will trust him to meet our needs. The more we will trust that whatever is left undone in our work at the end of the week is safe in his mighty sovereign hands. He will take care of it. And so the more we love him, the more we will be willing to Sabbath by taking a day off a week physically to rest or to rest mentally or emotionally, however it is that your work drains you. And the more that we love him, the more we will long to spend quality time with him on that day off in prayer, reading his word, sharing fellowship with his people to refresh and to deepen our faith. Sure, Paul says in, in Colossians 2.17 that the Sabbath, the Sabbath day is a shadow of the reality that has now come in Christ. So true rest is found ultimately in knowing Jesus. But if we really believe that is true, won't we take time off to be with Jesus? And for the rest of the commandments, suffice to say that the more we love God, the more we will love each and every human life, because each one bears his image from the womb right up to final breath. And so we won't want to murder God's image bearers or defile them in adultery or harm them through lying and false accusations. And the more we love God, the more we will love our families as the foundational unit of social order that he has established in the world. Honouring our parents, working hard to support the marriages around us so that adultery doesn't become a temptation. And the more we love God, the more we will trust in his provision and be content with what we have not coveting or being tempted to steal because we know he gives us what we need. And ultimately we have something far better than any material possession. We have him. These commandments cover all of life, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. They are about whole of life worship every day, not just on Sunday but they can only be kept in a way that is truly honouring and pleasing to God when our hearts are filled with undivided love for him.
as he truly is, as he has revealed himself in his word. And so I simply want to finish with a question. How will you pray? And what will you do to spend time with Father, Son and Holy Spirit this week? To open up your heart to him afresh so that he can grow that love in you. I'm going to pause for a minute so that you can think about that. And then I'll say a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a rescuing, redeeming God who has such overwhelming love for your people. Lord, please grow in our hearts that undivided loyalty, that heartfelt love for you that you desire in return. And so help us to keep your commandments to fulfill our calling as your kingdom of priests and holy nation. Help us, Lord, to show your goodness, your light to the world around us in loving, faithful obedience. And in the time that we spend with you this week, would you take our hearts captive more and more to your great beauty? And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.